I'm your host, Rena Friedman Watts, and this is the Better Call Daddy Show. Hey, this is Big Daddy, Wayne Friedman. That's my grandpa. Grandpa, you ready for more daddy drama? My dad is my number one hero and number one fan. And I'm a pretty cool dude. All right, season four, baby, here we go. More stories you're not going to believe. And maybe you will after you listen. Five stars. Five and a half stars, two thumbs up. You are a pretty cool dude. Love you, mommy. Don't stand on the table and damn the public. You'll get some words of wisdom to live by. Here we go again. Better call daddy. You know what your problem is? You like me. Yeah, I do. Each week, I interview a guest, share the stories with my dad, and then he weighs in at the end of every episode with his wisdom and wit. Hey, Grandpa. Everyone from influential players to inspirational fathers, and of course, controversial people. Grandpa, my mommy's calling. Creating that legacy one call at a time. And welcome to the Better Call Daddy Show. Stay tuned. Where's the music? Better call daddy cause he knows you best. He's bringing the test. He sees possibilities. Better call daddy, he'll be by your side. Better call daddy, you're the apple of his eye. He sees possibilities. I'm excited for today's guest. Tom Vaughn pivoted his life around his father's passing. It reinvigorated his purpose. He's a screenwriter and he teaches others how to do it. Tom, welcome to the Better Call Daddy Show. Good morning. Good morning. I am so excited to have this conversation with you. I wanted to let the audience know that I have attended two of your parties and that we have a shared friend, Nick Gray. Yes. wrote the two-hour cocktail party, and I feel like you execute the two-hour cocktail party right to spec. Oh, thank you. Well, I have to. Yes. I like it's the only reason I do it. I am so I've never hosted parties before. I have social anxiety. So like the idea of being exposed. I'm very sensitive to embarrassment. I'm very sensitive to intimacy, like public intimacy. So I'm too afraid to host parties because I'm afraid people won't show up and I feel rejected if they like text me and go, hey, I'm not going to be there. Like I take it personally. And and I know intellectually it's silly and not to worry about it. But what Nick's book did for me was it gave it a process. And I love processes. I love systems. I love step-by-step, you know, ways to do things. So like having a process through the party takes so much stress off me to like, oh, I get to focus on this process and everything takes care of itself. Whereas my natural tendency is to just worry about everything taking care of itself. But if I have a process, I can focus on the process and let it fall where. And then everything seems to work out fine. Everyone has a a good time and new friends are made. It's always delightful. And I'm going to keep doing them as long as people keep showing up. That's wonderful. Yeah. What was your first one like? I don't think I attended the first one. No. Well, the first one was all screenwriters. So that made it very safe for me because I, I have enough of a reputation as a screenwriter that I know people will show up. Like I know like that was a safe spot. So like I will just bring in screenwriters who I know will enjoy meeting other screenwriters. I know I can pull in those favors. People would be interested to spend those two hours with me. So like it was like a very safe experiment. And then Nick reached out to me afterwards and said, hey, this is great. Started asking me some questions. His big thing was how many people showed 
that agreed to be there. Like that's apparently a big number for him. Okay. Which is, okay, 18 people said they'd come. How many actually showed up? Because of, I was so selective about who I invited. We had a very high turnout. I think we had one person who who didn't make it. And apparently with Nick, that's like, that's a big deal. Like that's, that's really, really good. He said he was going to be in town and said, why don't we throw a party? And then, you know, he co-hosted the next one. So. Okay. It, that's the one I went to. And, and what's that's so the one crazy is like, he had sent me his book and said he wanted to be on the podcast and I was getting ready to move to Houston. And so oh. before. Yeah, before I moved, it just didn't happen because like moving cross country, you know, gets kind of crazy. Yeah. But I started following him on social and I read the book and I loved the book. And then so I saw on his social media status that he was throwing one in Houston. So I yeah. messaged him that day. I was like, I would love to meet you. I would love to actually attend one and see this unfold. And then that's yeah. how we connected, which was so great. And now I've gotten to go to two of them. And I am just so impressed by how you pull them off. Oh, thank you. Well, it's all it's all Nick, you know, like it's all that. And it's also the people you invite. Like that's that's a big thing of inviting interesting, fun, positive people that makes a huge difference. So, you know, I know you got to meet Lana. You got to meet some other people. I've got a Kate hooked up with Lana as well. Oh, and cool. So, like I I get so much joy out of finding out. Oh, yeah, we we connected afterwards and we did this and I did their short film and it's so delightful. It's so rewarding. That's incredible. Yeah, I also am really interested in your Hollywood chapter before we get to the daddy story. OK, I know that you were out there. You were smoking two packs of cigarettes a day. You yeah. got to work yeah. with some A-list celebrities and then you made your way back out to Houston. So can you give me a little of that? Well, I've gone back and forth. Fourth, the last 27 years, I've split my time between Houston and LA. So I will live in stretches here and then I will live in stretches there. And it's usually determined by work. The last time I lived in Houston for any stretch, work had dried up and I got very, very nervous. And I went back there to, you know, basically just to start working again. And this time, basically, I hit like a peak with like how much I'm working, how well I'm doing, you know, with employment, with writing and things like that. And then I go, oh, I can afford to move back to Texas now. And so I'll move back to Texas. And then eventually things slow down. Eventually I get distracted with this. And then and then I go, oh, God, I got to go back now. And so then, then I go and I move back. And after the pandemic, everyone is so much more comfortable with Zoom calls and meetings online and video that I don't anticipate a need to having to, to move back any anytime soon. So, you know, me and my family are are pretty much settled here now. But you know, it's it's, it's been a fun career. It's 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 strange to think that I'm kind of, you know, at the age where, you know, things are kind of winding down career-wise, you know, for retirement. There's more years behind me than there are years ahead, but that's a little odd. But there's still, you know, I've still got 15, 20 years left of work. Yeah, I like teaching. I like writing. So I'm very, very fortunate. I'm, I'm very fortunate. I, everything I do during the day is is in some form something that I love to do. I'm very, very blessed in that regard. You know, I teach. I like teaching. I'm building a small teaching company online where I teach screenwriting. And that's been really fun to build that. I write movies. I miss making movies because I'm I'm in features rather than television. 
television, Mm -hmm. uh, whereas television, you're in production much more consistently, whereas features, I'm in production once every every two years. And and I I miss that. And that's probably the next phase I want to get into is getting into production more, producing more, directing more. So I am I am moving from one production to another. I'm working with a director now. He just had a movie released. He has a window before his next contractually obligated film. And so we're trying to make a movie within that window, which to me is like such, I think he's used to it now, but the luxury of I'm going to make this movie and when I get done with this, I'm going to make this other movie. Oh, I've got a window to make another movie. So I'm just going to decide to make this movie. <laughs> like that's such a, a wow. strange luxury to have because it's what we all love to do. Like that's what we love to do. So I, I think you kind of get a little numb to it because it becomes the thing that you do and you tend to forget how fortunate you are, how much we love our job, how much we enjoy doing this. And I would like to be in that position a little more where I'm a little more numb to it. Well, of course I have another production. That's what I do. I have another production, another movie made and so on and so on. What a delightful obliviousness to have. That's funny. Speaking of what a delightful obliviousness, talk to me about hearing no in Hollywood and having to be numb to that. Yeah, I mean, it's really, it's 99.9% of what you hear. (laughs) It is, I have a phrase for my students of, you know, like this business is really about how many no's you have in you. And can you hear this many no's and keep going? Because it's all, it's all almost all no's. And even if you get the big yeses and then you've got, you've got rotten tomatoes telling you how terrible you are, (laughs) you know, like it's, it is just a lot. It is much like baseball. It is a game of failure. It is mostly game of failure, but the successes are such highs and so wonderful and the act of creation, you know, like that, that makes up for it. Like even, cause even like you write a script, you don't know if that script's going to get made. You don't know if that screenplay, whether you'll get paid for it. I mean, obviously sometimes you work on assignments, so that's obviously a little different, but I like working on spec. You don't know where that script's going to go. You don't know if anyone's ever going to see it. You don't know how many people are going to read it. You don't know if it's going to get made. You don't know how widely distributed it's going to be. You don't, you know, like it's, there's so many questions. So the act of creation itself has to have its own joy. It has to. To. Otherwise, it's just too rough. It's just too tough. And I was talking to my wife about this not too long ago. Of just, I personally, I don't care where the creation is. Like, I just enjoy it. If I'm writing, great. If I'm improvising, that has my full attention. If I'm doing a local play that hardly anyone's going to see, that has my full attention. If we're doing a TV movie, I don't care. It has my full attention. If we're doing a bigger budget feature film, I don't care. It has my own, you know. So like the things that I tend to stress out about are, you know, just like, do I have enough money to get through a certain amount of time considering how strange my employment and business is? If that's at a comfort level zone where I'm okay, I really don't care where I'm creating. I really don't. I love improvising for 12 people in an audience, sometimes smaller, you know, because it's 10 o'clock at night in some strip mall theater in LA. That's fun to me. I couldn't be happier, even though, you know, you're not getting paid at all. You're just there for the fun of it. That has my full attention. And so I'm, I'm, I'm happy and delighted. I miss acting. I haven't acted in 16, 17 years. I'd like to do that again. And I'll, I'll enjoy that. 
So, you know, I'm very, I'm very fortunate that way. I know a lot of people, they, people I work with, like the stress and the anxiety because they've got so much on their shoulders, so many millions of dollars in the production. The studio is on your case. The, the movie has to open big. They've got three pictures committed to it. And then the amount, the amount of anxiety and stress is immense. And I don't envy them. I don't envy them. That, that's a tough way to do something you love. Do you think money messes up art? Oh, certainly it does. Yeah, absolutely. But it's necessity because it is it is both corrupting, but you know, you want to make a 15-20 million dollar movie, that's just part of the game. People want to know how they're going to get their money back. You know, Scorsese can do a, a 70, 80 million dollar picture that everyone's like, well, we don't expect to get our money back. We're there for prestige, you know, like that, which I understand that in itself is its own business decision. Apple making killers of, you know, the flower moon of just, we know we're going to lose money off of this, but the prestige and attention that our Apple TV will get because of it is, is worth it. That's still a financial decision they make because they believe in the long run that money will you know come back to them indirectly whereas Scorsese is I just have the money to make the movie I want to make like like he's just delighted by it he wants people to see it so I know that I've had to make decisions of doing projects that maybe weren't my favorite because I needed the money like you got to pay the rent you got to pay the mortgage as an old producer friend called it you got to feed the beast you know you've got to sometimes you want to tell stories and sometimes you got to create content and there's mm. there's a difference and you tend to know the difference you know which one you're doing and and which one you aren't so but making movies is expensive people getting paid crews they need to put food on the table too like like it's so if you feel like your movie is not particularly commercial and you're not quite sure of its commercial prospects then you got to keep the budget down like that's just you just the way to way to do it. So it all depends on who you're working with. It all depends on the project. But for the most part, I have found you just simply have to roll with where the business is going. That's all. Like there, like we don't have DVD sales anymore. That changes everything. Now we're into streaming. That changes everything. And you just hope you hope you get the opportunities for yourself to, to make the stories you tell the stories you want to tell. What has it been like for you to get a seat at the table, like to be able to have some of those conversations with the people that can make that happen for you? I wouldn't even call it a seat at the table. My experience, and this is you know, not even like not the best day to ask me because I just I just found another director decided to rewrite a script of mine. Totally. And so like I'm reeling from that. So it's Eesh. it is the third or fourth project that I've been on where the director comes on board and we're all excited and no, I don't want to change the script. The script is great. And then they go off and they change, they rewrite the script and not for the better, you know, like not for the better. It's it's and it's such a bizarre experience to go through of wait, why did you make these changes? Why do you think these this is better? Why do you, I don't always understand it. In fact, I never understand it. I've only had a couple, a couple directors that I've worked with, which were so delightful, which were just pushing, pushing the script to be better, just pushing the script to be better. And they, they didn't pretend they were writers. They just pushed this scene of like, you can do this scene can be better. This scene can be more compelling. This this can be more interesting. And to push you and push you and and they make you better. Even though sometimes in the moment you're like, oh my God, just just it's fine. 
But then it's better and you go, you were right. You were right. You know, like you were right. But then you get the directors who come in and just rewrite wholesale on their own just to kind of, I guess, make it their own or something. Like, I don't quite understand it. So having read the script last night and going through that experience, I'm probably, you know, a little raw about it right now of, well, this is just more indication I need to start producing more. I need to start directing again. I need to start pushing these these things forward. People are, you know, respond to the material, but maybe they're not quite sure why they respond to the material. And so they kind of want to change it. it. It's confusing when you don't know why. You know, someone comes in and rewrites the scene better and you're like, uh, yeah, that's better. That is the intention of the scene, but better executed. Great. Like that's, and I'm going to get writing credit for that. And I'm going to look like I wrote that. Great. I'm a, I'm all right with that. I'll yeah. look stronger than I am. It's like an actor. It's like working with an actor. Like an actor is almost always going to make you look better than you are. You know, like they're like a good actor will always make you look like a better writer than you are. And so you want that same thing from a director of make me look like a better writer than I am. And then they end up doing the opposite and they make you look like you were, you were the one were confused, but like the scene you wrote was not confused. The scene you wrote was, its intentions were very, very clear. And then some, at some point the execution got lost. So so I don't feel like I have a seat at the table by, by any stretch. I feel like I am still, you know, on the outside looking in, you know, and, and most people are just because you're making a living at it does not mean you have a seat at the table. Like I, like those, you are, you are paid off to not sit at the table. <laughs> you know, like mm. you they give you money for the script and then they do whatever they want with the script. So it can be pretty frustrating. Yeah. And also like in the beginning, did you want such a role in, in your writing coming to life or were you more happy with I'll write it and you bring it to life? It's a good question because I started out as a playwright. So, you know, I was used to, oh, I this is how I wrote it and this is how we do it. Like a playwright owns the material. Playwright always owns the material. The theater, that cast, they lease they lease the material from you. So you have final say on on everything. Whereas with film, it's the exact opposite. Like they buy it from you and you have no say whatsoever. Creatively, that's very frustrating, but I can I can certainly understand why, you know, a production company would want that. You know, that's their money. They have to protect their funds. And I've seen a lot of films go down because they let a director go nuts. They let a director lead them down a path and they got financially killed when they really needed to fire that director. You know, like that's what they should have done was at that first impulse that this director did not care about what they cared about. You got to fire the guy and they didn't. I understand why the mechanism is there. And I happen to agree with that mechanism. Like those who take the risk need to protect that investment. I totally get that. What happens is, is when they don't know how to protect the investment, when they like, that's, that's the issue of, I understand you want to protect the investment, but do you know how to protect the investment? And did you bring anyone in that knows how to protect the investment? Do you have an advisor who knows how to protect the investment? You have the power to protect the investment, but do you know how? So I am a commercial writer. I, I enjoy genre. I enjoy pleasing audiences. I, you know, like, like that, that to me is the ultimate, you know, 
measuring stick of of is this is this project successful is is do the audiences feel emotionally satisfied by it it is always strange to me to cut that person out and bring in someone who who's only concerned about prestige or what they think is uh, making themselves look good. Because I, I had one movie that just flopped recently really bad. The subtext of the entire movie was the director, are you impressed with me? Are you impressed with me? <laughs> like that was the subtext. of Wow. Every, I was just trying to impress you, trying like with the shots and with the the details. And, and, and then, of course, there was no story there and it flopped terribly. And I've worked with, let's see, one, two, three, four. I've worked with four directors right after disappointments at the box office now. There is nothing worse than a director that's lost their confidence. They are so insecure. They cannot make decisions. And then you get a director who knows what they're doing, like knows their story, and they make you look like they make you look brilliant. So it's such a collaborative medium of everybody making everybody else look great. It might be one of the reasons why I love improv so much is improv is all about making each other look great. It is all about, it is easier said than done to make everyone else look great because it's always very tempting to be the hilarious one. It's always tempting to be the funny one. It is always tempting to be, okay, let me be the star, but to collaborate and grow and yes, and, and create something together with the goal of the scene and the experience is what's important rather than the accolades yourself is, it's just such a joy to do it. I love the improv community as well. Me and my husband did that for a couple of years, just for date night, just for fun. Really? Yeah. It's funny because I I joke and I'm I'm only semi-joking, but the worst people in Hollywood are stand-up comics. The worst. They are consistently the worst. And I find like the best people in Hollywood are improvisers. That's so, interesting. Yeah. And right, like, why? You know, traditionally, and obviously you're generalizing, you know, I've got some good friends that are stand-up comics that are wonderful human beings. But for the most part, the stand up what what motivates someone to stand up and be the center of attention mm. and be funny and get that feedback, desperately need laughs, is a very particular kind of personality. And even if you grow out of that career-wise, like maybe you become Seinfeld and you have some success, it doesn't change the fact that there was a certain part of your personality that got into that business that needed that at the beginning. And so uh, stand-up comics tend to be much more competitive with each other, much more self-absorbed. But again, you're generalizing. I know plenty of stand-up comics that I, I would trust with my life that are just wonderful human beings. But I also don't know any stand-up comic that would disagree with me. I can see that. Yeah, they would pretty much all say, oh, yeah, we're like, they're a terrible community. What's the writing community like? It depends if we're on strike or not. That makes a huge difference. Like when we're on strike, we're we're a brotherhood and sisterhood, you know, holding hands, kumbaya. And then as soon as the strike is over, like he paid, they got paid for what? They bought that piece of shit. Yeah, like, oh, totally. Jesus. So, uh, being a feature writer, I have never really developed that sense of community that a lot of my TV writer friends have. Mm-hmm. TV writers are obviously in writers' rooms, and they're spending every day with each other, and they're having lunch together. And much like improvisers, if you know, in a good, healthy writers' room, they're building on each other, making each other better. But Obviously, you get a really bad showrunner, then it's a real nasty, toxic environment. And that, unfortunately, sounds like it's more common than I realized just from talking with friends. But 
I am at a spot in my career as I've become a little more comfortable in my own skin that I have been enjoying other writers a lot more. I, I've been enjoying talking to them and my insecurity can really get in the way as well. Like I, I probably in a different life would have veered towards stand-up comedy. Because like I, I'm a big old drunk, was not a nice drunk, was not a nice person, was like I, there was definitely a path for me where my behavior was going to get worse and worse and worse. And, and I thank God I got sober because I was, I was not going to have a happy life going the direction I was going. So, you know, you don't turn that around overnight. Like that takes time. That's, that's steering a cruise ship, <laughs> you know, like it, you don't, you're not turning that on a dime. That takes years. I, I feel like I'm at a part in my life right now that I can be genuinely happy for other people when they succeed and, and want them to succeed and have students of mine succeed and make more money than me. Like I, I will joke about that with my wife of like, that's a student, like they're making more money than me. And that's one of my students. <laughs> so. Yeah. Talk about that. I know Jeremy Ward was there for you through a time where you were able to call him and he was a student of yours. Do you want to talk about that? That special yeah. relationship? The relationship I've developed with, with students over time has been very, very unique and special and very, very gratifying. And I, I forgotten I told you about that, that when my dad went into hospice, I, I called Jeremy, who was a student of mine because he, yeah. he was in the hospice business and he'd become a friend over the years. You know, he's a, he's a good friend. And I called him to ask like, what the hell do I do? What is going on? And what's my next step? How do I do this? And you know, he had been through it so many times with other people. So he just went through it, just kept me calm and told me what to focus on. And it was a real, real lifesaver during that time. Can you talk to me about the quality of life and how, like what happened during that time? Yeah, I was in New York for a television festival because I had a show up there. I had a show up there and we were having screenings of this show, trying to set it up. And then I got a phone call from my mom and saying, hey, dad was sick. It might be serious. We're going to try to figure out what's going on. And it was during the World Series. It was 2017. And the last time I had saw my dad where he was my dad was during a Astros playoff game. So, and it was their first time in the World Series that year. And so that, that's always, I, I've always kind of linked Astros playoffs with, with my dad at this point. So, and then the next morning, if I remember correctly, the next morning, it was the phone call of like, he's got cancer. It's bad. It's pancreatic cancer. And he's got maybe six months. So I told Kevin, my partner, producing partner on, on the TV show, and I grabbed a flight that night to fly down to Houston. Now I'm living in LA at the time. Someone's watching my cats and I've got to make those arrangements of like, and once you tell people your dad is sick and, and dad's in the hospital and your dad is dying, they rally around you. Like they're like, yep, whatever you need, you know, no problem. We'll do this. We'll do this. I was teaching a class in LA at the time and, you know, like they were great. Everything was, was great. So I flew down that Wednesday and I got there late. I got in Houston late and I didn't see my dad. I just stayed with my mom that night. And then Thursday morning, I went to see him and he was pretty drugged up when I got there. But as soon as I saw him, as soon as I saw him, I was like, he's not going, he's not lasting six months. There's no way he's, he's going this weekend. Like I just knew, I, I just knew there was no way he was, he was on the brink of death. Like you could just tell. So I called my brother Lance. 
And Lance is Lance is used to the drama of the family and is very sensitive <laughs> to everything. And so I was like, Lance, you got to get down here. And he doesn't like flying. He's afraid. Like he's 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 got even more neuroses <laughs> than me. <laughs> and he's like, I was just told that it's six months, and now you're telling me get down here now. Really? Are you sure? Because this sounds a little dramatic. <laughs> and we're like, I've seen him. He's not going to last. You got to get down here now. You got to get down here now. Apparently something happened that night where he just took this terrible turn that night. My feeling is my dad's biggest fear was being in hospice, being an invalid, being in that kind of helpless, undignified state. That was his biggest fear. And he talked about it all the time of like, that's what I don't want. He would joke about, take me out back and shoot me. You know, like, like that's, that's how he wanted to go. So my personal belief is his body just said, no, he just shut down. He just said the hell with it. And like, he just decided I'm, I'm checking out much earlier than six months. So that day he came home that night and he had pancreatic cancer, which had spread to several other organs. At some point, the doctors came to us and said, we don't think he's going to last six months, which my response was no shit. <laughs> I, like, like, just look at him. Just look at him. So it then switched to two or three weeks, which still seemed like a long time to me. Like he, like, I, I don't think anyone's going to stay in that state for that long. We brought him home and it was just me and my mom that night. The nurse didn't show up. The painkillers weren't there. And his painkillers wore off around 1 a.m. that night with my mom there, just me and my mom. And this was a huge moment for us. One, it was a huge moment for my mom and I of just the way, like having this experience together. We talk about it a lot of like, we were the only ones who saw that. We were the only ones who saw this. But what happened was, is my dad's painkillers ran out. And so he started to feel all of the pain of all of these organs failing and was in excruciating pain. I had never seen his face like this. I don't think I've ever seen anyone's face like this. I, I imagine this is what war looks like if someone is just mangled. And it was an excruciating pain. At some point, the painkillers got there. Like we were calling and like, like to have the hospice, like uh, we don't care what time it is. Get it here. Get it here. And at some point, the painkiller showed up and we were trying to give the painkillers to my dad. And he said, Jeannie, no, just let my wife's name, Jean. Jeannie, no, just let me die. And he said that out loud to us. We had to explain like, this is not trying to keep you alive. This is just for the pain. Like, this is just for the pain. And so that's what ended up he took it then. Like he finally, he agreed to take it for the pain. And then a few minutes later, and of course your memory is all kind of mixed up as far as the timeline goes, but not too long after that, he said to me, just let me go. Let me go. Oh my God. And I, and I said, uh, you know, dad, like fine when, you know, that that's so can you hold on until tomorrow when everyone gets here, when Lance gets here and can you hold on till that? And he, and he said, yeah, I can hold on. I can hold on. So we had a, like somewhat of an agreement <laughs> that he was going to hold on until everybody got there. And so the next day, everyone started to arrive. I have three older brothers. Two brothers were there, but I have a niece that my, my parents raised. And I have my brother Lance up in Philadelphia, and they're both in Philly. So they both were able to fly 
down that day. And Lance got there about 12.30 a.m. Saturday morning. So basically Friday, late Friday night, basically. And we just kept giving my dad the painkillers through most of the day to kind of get by and people visiting and people being there. And his nieces came in and his brother was able to fly in and his sister was able to fly in. And so we had a house full of, of people that loved him and, and being there. So I am the executor of the will and I'm sober. So not everyone in my house handles this. And so I was always very, very grateful because some somehow in some form, I ended up kind of responsible for everything going smoothly. And I was thankful for that because it keeps me busy. You know, like like I said, I like processes. I like something to focus on so I don't have to deal with any of this stuff. I need to deal with like, what do we have to like, what do we have to do? Is there, fo- is there food for everybody? Who's here? Who needs to get picked up at the airport? Who needs to like, so like I... I am able to focus on that, which I I was grateful for. My dad never really came to any kind of real consciousness after that. Like he would be kind of aware, but was never talking to anyone again, was never like he was just on painkillers. My cousin Marnie is a nurse and she's an intensive care nurse. So when she got there, her dad, my uncle Tom, who I'm named after, were very like her dad and my dad were very close. They're all they're all close, but they were particularly close. And so Marnie and Nikki, my cousins, were were very close to my dad and loved him very much. And so she came down and that was a godsend because the hospice wasn't very useful at all. But we had an intensive care nurse and she took care of everything and was was just a real godsend. And I've grown quite close with her since as well because of this experience. But my dad was out through most of the day and not very aware of anything, mostly asleep. And so around like 1220 that night, he kind of wakes up. He just kind of like wakes up and we're like, are you okay? Because we're like, we're afraid. Like, did your painkiller run out? Did you like, we're like, why are you up? And then like two minutes later, my brother Lance passes the window because he had just got there. And so we, there's a lot of these little moments throughout the whole thing where suddenly Lance got there and he didn't see, he didn't see it, but like woke up. And then two minutes later, like Lance is coming through the door going, Hey dad, Hey dad. And coming in and seeing him. And, you know, I like those kind of moments you you don't forget. And then, so when Lance got there, he was the last one to arrive that needed to be there, was able to spend some time with my dad. Now, of course, he's not that aware. He can just smile and recognize him. And he said Lance. And I think that was huge for Lance to kind of hear his name at the, you know, one last time. And from that point on, I had switched over to okay, everyone's here. Everyone's had a moment. He's been able to see everyone. Now I'm switching gears to how do we let him gracefully go? Like, how does he move on? How does he want to do that? You know, just kind of changing the the energy of the place, you know, like when you, like, there's no crying in the room with dad, like, don't, there's no crying. Go in there, spend time with him, talk to him, let him hear your voice, but no sadness, no crying, nothing like that. Just go in there. And we tried different things. We had his favorite music on as best we, and I still, one of my regrets to it was like, 
we could have done better with music. Like we could have, we didn't have iTunes music at the time. So like, it wasn't like the entire Beach Boys library. We only had certain songs. And so the next day was, how do we make him as comfortable as possible? How do we give him the energy he needs? So if he wants to go, how does he want to do it? Does he want to go with everyone there? Does he want to go with just mom? Does he want to go completely by himself? How does he want to move over? And so Marnie was like, open up the window. A lot of people like to have the window open when they go. And so... But one of the things that Jay Ware had told me, and because this changed my my sense my sensibility about it, was just go through the whole thing and just be grateful that you're having these moments. Be grateful, be attentive, be aware, and be present. You will be surprised what beautiful moments will come out of them. And so that advice was very important to me. And I, I have since, now that I think about it, when I see the other people who had more of, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening. This is a tragedy. This is terrible. Crying. I'm so sorry you're going. That their memories of this experience are very different than mine. My memory of this experience is just nothing but gratitude. Nothing but how lucky we were to have this experience how lucky dad was to go in a house where everyone was present, how lucky we were to have these moments that we remember that meant something to us. Whereas if you had asked my aunt Liz, who's who's now passed, unfortunately, she would remember it as a terrible weekend, that this is the weekend that dad died. Whenever I have friends who have ex- similar experiences coming, I, I tell them about Jeremy's advice and like the how much difference it made for me. So the next day was all about saying goodbye or not saying goodbye, letting like Friday was about saying goodbye. Friday was about how does he want to go? And we tried all different options. We didn't rush anything. We we just like let it go. And I went to go to sleep that night, Saturday night, and I slept for about maybe 35 minutes before I got up. I like I just woke up for for no good reason and I leaned down the hall and I could hear kind of this death rattle this just this really that I hadn't heard before and it was it was I didn't like it I didn't like it and I was kind of surprised he was still alive I thought he was going to go and so I got up and I walked down the hall my cousin Marnie was just outside his door and she had just fallen asleep and then I realized that that death rattle was my brother snoring in the living room. <laughs> and and then I come in and I turn to my dad and I could see, I, I could see he was gone. He was gone. And then I reached over and I touched him and, you know, he was, he was clearly gone. And then I woke Marnie up and Marnie had on her wrist, like her sleep monitor. So she knew that she had only been asleep for like 10 minutes. And it sounds like my dad, like this is, if you made me guess, I would have said he'd probably want to die by himself. And so as soon as Marnie fell asleep and as soon as he was alone, he went over, he passed over and and uh, went to the other side. To this day, I still believe like something in the energy of that house shifted that woke me up. Something shifted that woke me up. I had slept so little over those last three or four days to wake me out of a dead sleep took something. 
And and this is the timeline of it. Marnie had just fallen asleep. I had just woken up and he passed somewhere in between, which was maybe five to 10 minutes. And we had been waiting all day for like, how does he want to go? How does he want to go? I started to wake everybody up and say, hey, dad has passed and dad has passed. And one of the really peculiar things, both my mom and I had commented on it, that his face was mostly in pain through three days. Like he just didn't look good. He just didn't look like my dad. And then of course my mom and I had that night where he was in such excruciating pain without the painkillers. But when he passed, he looked like himself. Like he lied on that bed, peaceful. He looked like himself. I don't know, like it looked like he gained weight, which I'm sure there's some kind of physiological thing that, but like it was just a few minutes, you know, but he looked at ease and at peace and he looked like himself. So that was a really wonderful thing to see and a peaceful thing for us to see, to, you know, to say goodbye. And so then we called, we called the funeral home. They brought two people out. And of course, I don't know who works funeral homes. Like that's a that's 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 a unique job to do that, <laughs> you know. To to and the guy that worked there, I don't know if you have ever seen the horror movie Doctor Giggles. No, but that's funny. but there is. I can't remember the actor's name. He was in L.A. Law, Larry something, and I noticed it immediately that this guy looked like Doctor Giggles. I wasn't going to say anything because like, I don't know how appropriate it is, <laughs> is that the actor's name is Larry Drake. He was the bad guy in Dark Man too. And my brother Lance, who loves horror movies even more than I do, finally leaned over to me at some point and said, did they send Dr. Giggles over to pick up dad? And, and I was like, oh my God, it's not just me. This guy is, because he looked like, and I hope he's not listening to this podcast, but he looked like the like a creepy funeral home guy. At that point, we just like, we just found it hilarious. Like we just, it just got such a kick out of that. This guy was, came straight out of Hollywood typecasting of what a funeral home guy looks like. And he was very stilted in like his rehearsed language. This is what we're going to do. I'm very sorry for your loss. We're going to take a moment with your beloved and we are going to move into the other room. We were going to do this and then we will come out and then we will check with you. And like, just no, no bedside manner whatsoever, but very rehearsed. Like it was written to have bedside manner, but he could not sum it up. <laughs> like it was just Dr. Giggles. There's no bedside manner there. So that became one of those very distinct memories we have of like Dr. Giggles came and picked up our dad. Like that's, oh my God. that's how it happened. So, you know, like they, they picked up the body and I don't like big, I don't, I'm not into materialistic things. I, I shouldn't say that. I mean, like I love TVs. I love computers. I just mean sentimentally, like I don't have, oh, this person gave this to me that gave me this worthless thing and I've kept it for 20 years. Like I, I just, I don't have that thing. I, I want less stuff. I know my brother took some of the ashes. My mom's got an urn on a shelf in my dad's old office. I want nothing to do with any of that stuff because I remember before my dad passed, maybe a year my dad passed, he wanted to give me a, a nice coat that he had, like a nice, really nice business raincoat. And I said, like, I can't take that, dad. I don't, I don't want it. He's like, 
like, it's really nice. You know, and I was like, if you give that to me, I'm going to be stuck with that coat for the rest of my life because it's going to be the coat my dad gave me and I'm not going to be able to get rid of it ever. And so if I take that now, I'm going to have that coat until the day I die and I don't want it. And he was like, yeah, I can see that. That makes sense. <laughs> so like he went and put it up again. So two things. I'm now stuck with that coat. I still like that. I got like that was given to me by my mom. And so like, oh, now I still got this fucking coat. And I didn't want any of the ashes. I didn't want anything along those lines. But I did get his electric razor. That's is great because like I, I don't shave every day. And so this could be convenient if I have a podcast or anything, I can do the electric razor. But it's it's old and I needed to change the blades on it. And so I opened up the electric razor. And this is like six, eight, maybe like a year after, maybe, maybe, maybe like two years after my dad died. And I opened up the electric razor and it's filled with my dad's whiskers from when he shaved his face. It's filled with his whiskers. And I'm like, son of a bitch. What do I, I can't, this is my dad's DNA. I can't throw it away. Like, so like, what do I, what I am stuck, but I can't throw away his whiskers. So uh, all right, I guess I, so I get a little, little plastic bag that I like, like a little travel. It looks like a little cocaine bag that you like <laughs> cocaine in. So I put it in there and I was like, I can't throw it out. I got to find a place to bury it somewhere. And I keep forgetting to bring it up to my mom's house where I can bury it. And so I am in effect stuck with these ashes type thing of my dad's facial hair that I can't, I can't get rid of. And like, I've even had the thought of like, maybe in the future when you can clone people, I'll have his DNA and I can have my, like, <laughs> like stuck with this thing. So like all these best laid plans of not having any sentimental attachments. I've got the coat and I'm stuck with these these whiskers in my in my office and a little tiny cocaine bag waiting to do something with it. <laughs> I love the cloning idea. My dad will think that's funny. I was like, hmm, maybe you could turn it into some sort of like art piece. An art piece. Yeah, because you're stuck with like, what's respectful? What's disrespectful? What do I like? Everyone's going to have a disagreement of like, take the whiskers and glue them on to you glue dad's whiskers onto a poster board. How dare you? Like, you're not you're there's no good thing. Like they're going to piss somebody off with it. I was also thinking like I would if they were my whiskers, I probably like would want to see if I could smell him. Oh, my God. That that I got to tell you, never occurred to me. Like as an old drunk snorting, <laughs> like there's just too close to snorting. You know, like what is the sneezing attack? I had accidentally snorted my dad's whiskers. You know, like how do I explain that? I know your spouse comes in. You've got like, like just hair coming out of your nose. All over. Yeah. So, yeah. I'm trying to keep you guessing, honey. <laughs> like I said, I, I remain very, very grateful for it. I'm so glad I was sober for it. You know, I've been sober 20, 22 years now. I guess I'd been sober 18 years at that point. Was glad I was there. You know, I had relatives that weren't sober through it. And again, they had a different experience through the whole thing. And, you know, just coming in, Jay Ware's advice, just being present, just being present. That was huge. Seems like there was a lot of blessings in the whole experience. It was amazing. Like I, like I said, I'm, I'm so grateful for it. But I did have a tiny midlife crisis afterwards because I, I wasn't married at the time. And my dad passed. And I remember exactly where I was in the guest bedroom in, in the door. And I and I had a moment, you know, being, God, I guess, 48 and single and never been married. And I had a moment of, oh, gosh, I'm going to 
die and I am not going to have a house full of people there for me. And I was so grateful he had that, but there was definitely the realization of, oh, I'm not going to have that. I'm, it's going to be a nursery, you know, like a, a nursing home for me because I'm not going to have any kids. I'm not going to have. So there was definitely like a little mini panic over the next year. And they say, like, don't make any big decisions after like a big event like that. So yeah, it was, it was, it, it affected me in a lot of different ways, a lot of positive ways. And like anything of, you know, you lose your dad and, you know, you start thinking about stuff. And I, I essentially, I was living in LA at the time. And I essentially moved in with my mom. So I kept my apartment in LA and I brought the cats out to my mom's. So I took that guest room, but I had to fly back every week. So I would fly out from, you know, maybe like Sunday to Tuesday to LA to do work, to teach a class, do what I needed to do, and then fly back and, and spend the week with my mom. And I did that for probably, probably about seven, eight months, just so she had somebody there in the house, you know, with her. So she didn't so that transition was a little easier for her. And then she didn't have a dog at the time. So the cats were great too, because they could, you know, roam the house and, and be there. But that also was kind of an adventure. I, I made the A-list on Southwest Airlines. So I was very excited about that. That was that was my big achievement that year. How'd you meet your wife? I Jeannie and I had we met in college. We went on a date in 1993, I think. At some point, we ran into, I say we ran into each other. I made a point. She was back in Houston and was in a show. And I made a point to to go to that show and then say hi afterwards. <laughs> you know, so that pretend like it was accidental. <laughs> and oh, Jeannie, you were you were great in that show. Hi, remember me? And you know, that sort of thing. I got a second date, I think 28 years later. I got a second date. That is a great story. But do you ever think to yourself, we totally could have like had a whole nother life together? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we talk about it all the time of just like we could have we could have definitely dated back then. But I was a drunk, you know, like you gotta recall, like I I was not I was not a great guy. You know, there's obviously I I like to think a great guy underneath there, but but there was too much drinking, you know, my social anxiety. I didn't I didn't under I didn't know I had anxiety then. I didn't know I had social anxiety. I covered it up with drinking. So like in my mind of like, oh, I need a couple drinks to get comfortable here, I didn't realize that's my anxiety. And so when I quit drinking, they prescribed to me Paxil, which is a, an antidepressant. And so they just thought of like, this is helpful for anyone who quits drinking and, you know, do this. And so I ended up doing that. But then at 10 years later, I was like, I don't want to be on these pills anymore. What am I doing on these pills? I don't need them. And then I quit those pills. And then like three or four months later, I started to have this really hardcore anxiety, just creeping anxiety and getting worse and worse. And I couldn't understand it. And I was improvising and like it, it had become terrifying. And I was having, I had an anxiety attack while improvising during a scene once. Oh my so God. I, went, I went to the doctor and I did definitely some of the, the, the WebMD stuff and diagnosed myself with social anxiety. And so I went to the doctor and I went, this is my case. I did this, 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 this. And he's like, well, yeah, that sounds like social anxiety. You, you likely have social anxiety. And I was pissed because like, how do I develop this in my 40s? How does someone in their 40s develop social anxiety? And he was like, you didn't just develop it. You've had it your whole adult life. That's why you were drinking to cover up the social anxiety. And then when you stop drinking, we put you on Paxil. And one of the things Paxil treats is social anxiety. 
So I had this thing covered up. I would feel it every now and then, but I never identified it as such. Like I never knew what it was. I just thought that was was life. I just thought that's how life was. That was a big thing with my drinking of just how drunk I would get and how unhappy I was. And then one of the things sobriety taught me was like, oh yeah, no, life's not supposed to be that way. <laughs> like life's not supposed to be miserable and unhappy and horrible. You're like you don't have to live life that way. For me of like, oh, that makes so much sense. And I could trace so much of my issues and so much of my drinking, so much of, of the choices I made based off of that social anxiety that I didn't even know I had. It was really incredible of like how, how clear my life's suddenly became of the choices that I made, both good and bad, and how I ended up where I ended up because I had this essentially undiagnosed social anxiety. Now, I wish that I had dealt with it with cognitive therapy. Like, that's what I would encourage anyone of like, you know, cognitive therapy should be your first choice to deal with any of that. But I've been on Paxil for so long. And, and so I'm doing it that way for the most part. But it's such a black box. We have so little information about what Paxil does to you long term. We have so little information. I, I have no idea how much I'm going to have to pay for this in 10, 20 years. If anyone's out there who has social anxiety or anything along those lines, cognitive therapy is such a better route, such a better route. Have you tried that too? I tried it for a little bit, but the pills right now are just so easy for me. I just take a pill every day and I can live a decent life. So it's hard for me to like, okay, I'm raising an 11-year-old. I'm married. Do I really want to go through all of that again to try to like go through it? And so I made a conscious decision of rolling the dice of, I know my memory's worse. Like my memory's not so great. We don't know what the long-term effects are. So it's definitely a roll of the dice. But again, going back to my 20s, I was self-diagnosed or self-treating with alcohol, not knowing what I had. But if I knew what I had then, looking back, and you give me an option, I go cognitive therapy. Like do that then when you don't have a life of responsibilities and and like it just makes so much more sense. Do you think though that that helps you in your creativity having that anxiety? No, I don't think so. My writing's better than it ever was. Okay. Yeah, like so I don't worry about that. I think what what has changed is my drive. That's changed the most where my drive in my 20s was this conviction that I was not worth loving unless I was successful, that I had to write, I had to be successful, that my value was in how good my screenplays were, how much money I was making and and what kind of it never occurred to me that anyone would love me just cuz they enjoy my company. Like like that never <laughs> occurred to me. So like I had to I had to be successful. And that kind of fear does motivate you. Like it it is motivating. I was working all night writing, trying to get stuff done, trying to get good at it. But I was also you know, I had reached some success in, in the 90s with my writing and still have not matched that kind of money that, that I made during the 90s. I was as unhappy as I've ever been, which was was like one of my one of my bottoms with my drinking. It was like I had I had achieved a lot of the goals that I had set out for myself and I was miserable. I was so unhappy. And it was terrifying because there was that sense of, well, what now? 
<laughs> like I was supposed to be, this is what I've been working for. This is what I was supposed to be happy for. And now I've got this. And if this doesn't make me happy, where else do I go? It was terrifying. I can relate to that. I can relate to that so much. I mean, I had my Hollywood chapter as well. And I, at the end of it, I even said to myself, it's like, how many times do I need to see my name in the credits before I feel like I actually am successful? Yeah. Yeah. And then- Or that it wasn't by chance. It, what? Yeah. If this doesn't do it, what is going to do it? Like, like it was terrifying. So I was like, oh, I'm going to be unhappy the rest of my life. Oh, I understand. I get it. Uh, you know, and it was just, I didn't know how to live. I didn't know how to be present. I didn't know, you know, AA and you know, to a lot of degrees, I, I, I don't really go to meetings anymore for various reasons. I credit AA for setting me on a path of curiosity of how to live. That's wonderful. Yeah. How has that helped you with the work that you do with your students? Well, it helps with the writing a lot. And so that, in effect, helps with the students. I'm a much more emotional writer now. I am, I'm much more interested in the human experience. I'm much more interested in story as change and redemption and growth. That's become you know a singular through my writing of defining story as the transformation of a human being. I think I was somewhat intellectually interested in that beforehand, redemption, but I think I think afterwards, it became much more of an emotional hook that means something to me now. Being more present, being more aware, being more empathetic, all these things help your, your writing, your storytelling, your art tremendously. Do you put real life people that you know into your stories? Certainly shades and moments of it. Yeah, absolutely. When I got married, I, I was gifted with a, a six-year-old stepdaughter. And I wrote a horror movie like within a year with, you know, about parents and and like what. And a lot of that was informed of the anxiety of being a parent and watching my wife having to maneuver because I I'm a stepdad. So I I come in it from like the bonus child, bonus dad territory of like, we're lucky to have each other. You know, like I didn't think I was going to have a child. So I'm lucky to have you. I'm a good guy. I'm a good dad most of the time. I screw up a lot, but for the most of the time, I'm a good dad. So you're lucky to have me. So let's just enjoy how lucky we are to have each other. And whereas Jeannie, my wife, is much more like, I'm going to screw this up. I'm going to damage her. I'm going to scar her for life. I'm like She comes from a place more of anxiety and more of like, I need to do this right. Watching that kind of informed like, oh yeah, this is, I might be that way if you know I, I had been here from the beginning. Would that have been the kind of dad that I would have been you know if I was there from day one? But so that informed a lot of like that script of where does that anxiety take you? Like, like what kind of decisions do you make? What kind of choices do you make? And and so I, I you know, I formed a, a horror film out of it. I love that. I also love the question that you just said, like, would this have been different if I was there from the beginning? That's such a deep question to ask yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And there's no answer. There's no answer. It is different. Being a stepdad and being a biological dad is different. You try to make it as little difference as possible, yeah. you know? but there are, there are differences to it. Did it at all make you think about like wanting a child of your own? Not really. I selfishly, I would love to have like a 22 year old kid, <laughs> you know, like that's kind of what, maybe a high school kid. Yeah, like like that. It's the not sleeping through the night part. Yeah. 
Yeah, like someone I can chat with and give advice to. You know, I'm looking forward to Carrington being older. Like, that's going to be fun. I loved being an uncle. I love being an uncle. That's delightful. But, yeah, those first few years don't sound like all that much fun to me. They sound pretty awful. And and I've gotten older now. I'm in my 50s now. Like, you know, Jeannie and I are not certainly, we're at the age we're not going to have kids. So, so like, it, it has already been removed as an option. But Jeannie does think about it. Jeannie's like, do you wish you had, like, she feels bad. We got married late. And so, like, do you wish you had, like, and I, and I keep telling her, nope, <laughs> you know, like, I really don't. You know, like, I, I don't have that, that urge to go through that experience. But there is that, like how how nice it would be to have all the good stuff. That's not how it goes. You know, like you don't get just the good stuff. You get it. You get the whole package. And I'm grateful I didn't have them when I was younger because I was a drunk, you know, and I, if I had gotten married and had kids, I would now, I would now be divorced. No matter who that was, they would have divorced me and I'd be out of the house. Like it all ended up the way it's it's supposed to end up, I think. I can't think of anything that I could add that wouldn't take away something I'm not willing to trade away. That's really beautiful. I love that. I am curious, have you learned anything about yourself since you did get married? And what would you tell someone who still wants to find love later in life? Oh my gosh. That's such a good question because I, I have no advice. I don't. I know there's some truth to stop looking. I think there's some truth to that, but I also know people who just decided I think I'm going to get married and they got married. You know, I, I don't think there's any truth like that's universal for everybody. So like my advice would just simply be, I know for me, I was not ready to get married for a long, long time. I know what shifted for me was I had finally gotten to a place in my own life where I was content and I was happy. And I've been very good with friendships over the years. I've been very, very blessed with long-term friendships from every phase of my life. I have valued those. So I am. I know how to be a friend and I feel like I'm a pretty good judge of people. Most of the time, I, you know, it's like anyone, I have some failures. But I think what shifted for me was I finally was content with my own life and there was a desire to share it. Like That's that, amazing. That was the shift for me. Yeah, I love that. Are you working on a piece right now called Daddy's Girls? Do you see that somewhere? Do I you? think it was like on your LinkedIn or something. Yeah. Like it's supposed no, to come that's out a, 2024. That's a project that it is a thriller. And it's a lot about my own, my 20s where I wasn't a very good guy. And, and so it's basically a guy has a, a relatively short-term girlfriend. He wants to break up with her, but she's hot. And so he ends up having sex with her like one last time. Instead of breaking up with her, he spends one more night with her, but then gets ringed into having Thanksgiving with her and her family. And he's just too much of a coward to stop of like just being up front and this is how I feel. And, and so he ends up having Thanksgiving with her and then afterwards ghosts her. As a result, the father of the girl decides you show up at our Thanksgiving, we welcome you in as a family, and then you fucking ghost my daughter, and then decides to basically dismantle this kid's life, sets out to destroy it systematically, destroy his life. So it is a piece, I wrote it in 2009, and it took 12 years to set up and 14 years to sell, but we finally sold it. We got a director for it, and we're going to go out to cast as soon as SAG is over, the SAG strike is over. The plan 
plan is to go make it next year. So are you going to be shooting that in LA? I don't know. It takes place in Houston. Most of my scripts take place in Houston, but they always shoot it somewhere else. They shoot it in Toronto. They shoot it in Vancouver. They shoot it, shoot it in New Zealand. They, they shoot it in Bulgaria, you know, but they all, they're all written to take place in Houston. So. Have any of them taken place here? No, no, none of those scripts that have been produced have taken place. Oh no, that's not, there is one. There is one that I directed and we shot it in Houston, but that was my smallest, my smallest. Oh my gosh. Well, obviously I love the, the title. <laughs> Yeah, I figured you would. <laughs> that's great. Is there anything that you'd like to ask my dad? Oh, that's a very good. I did not expect that. Yeah. And he'll respond when you get the final edit. Okay. He'll respond when we get the final edit. I am very curious if you have always been this outgoing. Have you always been this comfortable with other people? And was this something that you, because I'm very curious about nature and nurture mm. and, and like how much this affects, because I've gotten a lot of good indications that both are more influential. So like we have Carrington is very outgoing. Mm -hmm. Carrington is very good at like, hey, I'm Carrington. Want to play? <laughs> you know, like she's she'll do that with anybody. Whereas like I just look at that as someone with social anxiety of going, oh, they're gonna hurt you. They're gonna say no, and you're gonna hurt your feelings. They're gonna get hurt. <laughs> so like I can't I can't handle the thought of doing something like that. So I'm curious of like, is this something that was always inside? you? And were you like that in the early years? Or was this something that had developed over time? It'll be interesting to hear his reaction, but I will tell you that I think there's ebbs and flows of it, right? So as a kid, you are that, oh, I was that little girl that wanted to sing to people and had this little confidence about myself, but then the world kind of beats you down. Yeah. And I think that after having interviewed over 300 people, I have worked that muscle I desire to be that little girl again. But yeah. I think that as an artist, as somebody who wants to get better at interviewing and improving and connecting with people, I think that it's something that you really have to work on. Yeah. I mean, most things are. Most things are practice. Most things are yes. get into that mindset of particularly as writers of writing, like I talk about this a lot of like writing things down is not just about remembering it. Writing things down is about training your mind to filter the world through a certain prism of how you see it, of writing down story ideas is great because you remember the story idea, but you are also creating a filter for how you perceive the world. Like, is that a story? So as information comes in, is that a story? And so as an interviewer, I would think there's a very similar filter that you build up of where do I go from that? Of like, oh, is that, do I let that go or do I dig deeper into that? Do I let that branch, which branch off of that do I then follow up with? And so the more you get comfortable with that, the more in tune that filter gets of like what the right decision is. I absolutely love what you just said. And too, like when you're interviewing somebody that you're not sure how much time you have with them, yeah. it's like, like, do you ask what the audience wants to ask or are you selfish? Yeah. So there's a balance there too, because sometimes you're like, well, I got a piece of what they want and there's still other things I want to know. <laughs> so do I go deeper or do I switch? Yeah. yeah. And, and I'm constantly after the interview thinking about that. And I wonder that about your writing as well. I, for the most part, I, you know, obviously every moment is different, but for the most part, I write with the assumption that if I find it interesting, the audience will. Yeah, that's confidence right there. Yeah. And I think for the most part, that's a safe assumption. I agree. And I feel like the more that I've done interviews and the more that I have found my tribe, that 
seems to be true because if your audience is building and you're attracting more of the people who you want to attract, yeah, then obviously your interview style is working. Yeah, because they find where you go with it interesting. And so it just becomes just like this snowball effect. The people that like what you find interesting, interesting are the people that keep coming and coming and coming. Do people pitch you? Yes, all the time. I fucking hate it. <laughs> I hate it. Hate it. Everyone thinks they know what a good story is. And like, it's, you know, we get paid good money for a reason because it's hard, you know, and recognizing a good story is hard and what makes a good story hard and how you're going to execute it. It's, hey, I've got a story idea. And I was like, no, you don't. And and it's hard. You can't be mad at them because they just don't know any better. But it's it's very similar of like after a sporting event of people of like, hey, why didn't we? Why didn't the quarterback do that? Why didn't the quarterback do that? And like it's Monday morning quarterbacking, and and people don't realize how hard other people's jobs are for the most part. Everyone thinks every other industry is filled with idiots. What do you say to people in a nice way that do pitch you? Yeah, you're. I'm always. I mean, just it, you're always very polite about it, you know, because they mean well. They they yeah. get excited. You right. don't want someone's enthusiasm and like piss on it. <laughs> you know, like that's like no one, no one needs or wants that. A lot of times, if there's something there, I will encourage them to to write it. Of like, hey, if like if you want to write, oh no, I need a writer. Those are the ones of like. Well, no, the writing's the the hard part, you know, like that. So I sometimes nod and go, oh, all right. Yeah, that could work maybe. And then I'm too busy. I can't do it. You know, like that sort of thing. But yeah, I always tend to be pretty, you know, polite and encouraging about it. It always puts me in a spot of like a, a spot that I would rather not be in. But again, like if someone's enthusiastic about something, you want to encourage it. No one needs a fucking downer because they have like something they're excited about. Have any people that have come to you with a pitch and up taking your class and then it becoming fruitful. And I also want you to be able to promote your class because I love your Twitter. I love your newsletter and you're doing amazing things. Oh, thank you. No, for the most part, if someone wants to take my class, that's how I'll meet them. But I've never, I've never had anybody like, I have a story idea. Cause I also feel uncomfortable pitching my class. Cause that's always like a weird thing of like, Hey, I have a story idea. Oh, you should give me money and I will help you with it. It's like a very awkward transition. But I, I do think you should have, try that. <laughs> maybe I should try. I do have people like ask me like other screenwriters and I will like, you know, you're asking a professional screenwriter to do their job for free. Like, like what this is what you're asking me. You're asking me to do my job for free. And you'll have to like kind of explain that. Which is, you know, seems to make sense to some people and, and not so much to others. Because like in their mind, they're like, well, it doesn't take that long to respond, but that's my work day. You know, like that's it is tough to convince people that you work for a living when you work at home or like write. And like there is that sense of people don't they think because your your schedule is somewhat flexible and you don't have a boss that everything is fungible, like that you've got all the time in the world. Like it's just two hours out of your day. Yeah. It's two hours out of my day. That's my point. But I'll meet people uh, when they take my class. I teach Monday nights, which is the uh, Story and Plot Pro, which are the more advanced students. And there's a system you have to go through to qualify for that because that's an in-person. And that's a real personal we're a tight group there. Like we're like, that's where Jayware is. And that, that is, you know, much more of a, a writer's group. Everyone's relatively close and it's, it's a, it's a good group. And then I teach asynchronous classes, which are pre-recorded videos, take at your own pace classes, which have turned out really great. I've, I've been so happy with how they've turned out. And it's really a result of just teaching for as long as I have. 
have. Like I know how to structure this out to be really, really effective. And so some people are a little nervous about taking an asynchronous course, but I've been really, really gratified that like those people have been turned around as soon as they take it. It is a really, really strong course and a reference point. They're designed to take the course once, but also break it down in smaller chapters so you can reference them at any time. Like if you're struggling with act one, you can go back to those videos and watch those videos. So it works as much as a uh, appendix as anything else as well. So I love those. I recommend those. Then of course I teach at the University of Houston. I teach three classes here, which this is my alma mater and I love being here and remarkably overqualified to be teaching introduction to screenwriting like I do here, but I enjoy it and I'll keep doing at least the advanced class here as long as they as long as they have me. So I'm not sure how much longer I'll be teaching all three courses at U of H. I would like to retire teaching the advanced class here. I really, really enjoy it. And then, so my website is storyandplot.com and I have a weekly email I send out every Tuesday, which is a screenwriting lesson every Tuesday morning. And then I'm on Twitter at Story and Plot, LinkedIn as well. I also do Facebook, but really Twitter is the best place to follow me. Like that's that's where I spend the most energy to kind of develop the, the tweets. Your tweets get a lot of hits too. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I take it seriously. Like I, I try to add value. It is it is my goal to add valuable tweets twice a day. And that's amazing. Yeah. Well, you are a gift to the community. So you are very kind to say. Yeah. Thank you. And like the whole point of the Twitter is to motivate you and encourage you to sign up to the Tuesday email. Like that's why it's there. It works for me. Great. Love it. And I haven't unsubscribed, which I do to many newsletters because I do really find it valuable. So keep it up. Yeah. I spend a lot of time to make it valuable. So it's really, it's really nice to, to hear that. Thank you so much for coming on the Better Call Daddy show. It has been an absolute honor, Tom. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm glad to talk about my dad. You've heard from my mom. Now, let's switch it over to Grandpa. All right. Tom Vaughn. Tom Vaughn. It's, it sounds like a Hollywood name, don't you think? It does. Well, I'll tell you, I got some things out of this interview you had with me that only, again, reinforce the legacy story of the Better Call Daddy show. He started uh, by asking me a question at the end. What makes you so outgoing? And isn't that also correlated to the love and attention that you get? And as you know, I was the, f- the favorite of grandparents, friends. I learned to go for the gusto at a very early age, where I w- always was motivated and pushed to be part of different activities and, and to learn how to fend for yourself. And that also builds momentum. That also when you keep striving, you keep getting results, you get better and better at whatever you do or whatever you try. So the key is motivation. If you have people behind you supporting you and motivating you, there's no telling how far you can go. As you know, I try to do that with you as well. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. I've tried hard to push and give opportunity to my children just as that was given to me. Isn't that part of a legacy story is to have a continuum. It can't be just about yourself. You have to be able to have a generational pull. I just watched with Maureen on TV, one of these great opera singers where his daughter, I had already heard before, is terrific. But his son 
has just come out with a new album. I think his name is Mayetto. Also sounded just beautifully, and he's doing a tour in New York right now, where, again, the motivation and the encouragement of participating, really, in the family business, which is, in this case, is singing. And doesn't that happen through many generations where people that run factories or people that run businesses or are doctors or lawyers also see the same thing, where they try to encourage their children maybe to do the same thing and to have that continuum. What was interesting in this episode also is that not only do you encourage people when they were young to try to forge this continuum, but at the end of life, Tom is working very hard. His father is in a lot of pain, trying to hold on so that the task of getting all of his children and all of his family to be able to see him and, and give him a final look before he passes away, the father responds that I'll hold on as long as it takes to gather everyone together. Your uh, great-grandma had a stroke. There was a big, was it a bar mitzvah that everybody came into town and she held on. She was ready to go. But because everyone came for the bar mitzvah and came to visit her, she felt like it was okay to leave and not force everybody to come back for a funeral when she decided to leave during a joyous occasion. So isn't it quite ironic that people have sometimes the power to even hold on when there's maybe not even any hope left to life, and yet they find a determination still to hang around as long as family wants to come and see them. And isn't that what we're doing with your grandma, is that we're on a, a cycle of having people, loved ones, come visit her because even a gap of just two or three days, she can't stand it. She doesn't want to continue without loving family there to support her. And isn't that what a secret ingredient to life really is, is having support and family so that we can be encouraged to reach for the stars and to live and feel like there's value to life because we're loved. That's a deep message. Well, I think I got this out of here. And as you know, I had an uncle that got married couldn't have any children, and it broke my grandfather's heart that there wasn't a continuum or a legacy of his name. And after Grandpa got depressed and passed away, what did his son do? His son then adopted a young boy and started mentoring him, where he turned into just a wonderful human being. Unfortunately, his life was cut short also, but the idea was that he decided that to try to honor his father was to try to have some type of family continuum. Even if he had to adopt a son, you couldn't tell that it wasn't his own son because that love and compassion and support where he turned into just a tremendous human being. He kind of woke up and said, hey, maybe my dad is right that there should be some type of continuum. And he went out after his father died and adopted a little boy. And isn't that what Tom is also saying? Is that with the ups and downs of how creative you have to be and how you're only as good as your last show and you can be creative and the glamour of Hollywood is a lot of hard work. It's a lot of strain. And also where you think you've done something wonderful and yet people can criticize you, tell you that it's not as good as you think it is, or even where it's completely in the direction you want to go in because the people are running it as a business. If they want to change certain things based on whatever sponsors they have, or they determine a lot of the final result. You know, he loves acting. He loves the, the pressure of being creative and putting something out there that's unique and being able to share it with the world as a part of his communication of his value. 
And yet, it's not a perfect love story, is it? But how do you like how he says to himself, after his father had all these people together and he saw how important family was and how everyone got united by rising to the occasion and giving their dad a send-off, that he decided, hey, you know, I don't want to be all alone in this world either. And he decided to straighten himself up and also make himself a family oriented version of himself, so to speak, where he was able to get married and and normalize and understanding that if he had certain anxieties, that there's better ways to solve that than drinking and that uh, drinking can be harmful to not only his career and his personality, but also where others would not want to be around him if he's in that kind of condition. So isn't that also part of the legacy of being the best of yourself? So there's a lot of deep stuff that came out of this show that also re-emphasized is the theme of the Better Call Daddy show. All right. Thanks for listening. Now I think I'm going to go call my dad. (laughs) I'll say goodbye and see you the next time. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy show. Join us weekly for new episodes and more daddy wisdom. Better Call Daddy is good advice always. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share. You can also find special episodes on my YouTube channel, and you can listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Amazon Music, Alexa, or your preferred podcatcher. That's wrap for now.